And now, Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for it. We thank you for the work that it does in us. We thank you for the refining effect that it has in our lives, for the purifying effect that it has in our lives, for the way that it convicts us, for the way that it strengthens us, for the way that it comforts us. We pray, O Lord, that as we come to your word, you would show us once again our need for Christ, and we pray that you would feed us with your word in order that we would grow in Christ's likeness. We also pray, O Lord, for our children, and we pray that the gospel seeds that fall on their ears today would dwell richly in their hearts, that they would believe in your time. And we pray these things for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. We are going to be starting chapter 13 today. Uh, This is the the second half of John's book. This is really where the second half of John's book starts. And again, this is the first half of the book is referred to as the book of signs because there are seven signs that John introduced us to. But now we enter into the book of Christ's passion is what it's called because this has to do with Christ's passion, uh, with his suffering, with the cross and the events that lead up to the cross. So we'll be looking at John chapter 13, verses 1 to 11 today. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 11. You know, one of the most important principles that I've learned as a Christian, and I think it's not only helpful to me as a Christian, but it's, it's helpful as a pastor. It's, it's helpful to anybody who's doing any form of ministry. It's, it's helpful for, for every uh, Christian uh, for the roles that we play in each other's lives in instructing one another and sharpening and uh, one another and, and working toward one another's sanctification. The principle is this, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. It's amazing to see the difference that there is between how unwilling somebody is Uh, when it comes to listening to truth, difficult truth in particular, when they think that I don't personally care about them versus someone who knows that I love them, somebody who knows I have their best interests at heart and how willing they are in light of what they know about how much I love them to listen to me and to at least hear me out. People will be much more inclined to listen to you if they know that you love them, if they are confident that you have their best interests in mind, particularly when it comes to painful truths. And truth often is painful. A few years ago, I met a pastor, a a local pastor, whose attitude really boiled down to having a love for preaching, but not a love for the people. And that was really reflected clearly on some of the social media posts that he made. It it was hard for me to see those things, but it's no wonder that he did not last long in pastoral ministry. Uh, And and it's no wonder he often felt and posted on Facebook like he felt like nobody was listening to him. Generally speaking, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. 
And this is actually a principle that is modeled by Jesus in the text that we come to today. As we begin chapter 13, we begin the part of John's gospel, again, which is commonly referred to as the book of Christ's passion. John has spent the previous five chapters telling us all these things that aren't recorded in the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those, these are things that uh, for, for whatever reason, just it didn't fit the purposes that they were writing their books for. Uh, they didn't include in their gospel accounts. But it's perhaps for this reason that this is all kind of unique information that these chapters serve as some of the most loved chapters in all of Scripture. And so as thir- uh, chapter 13 begins, we move to the night on which Jesus was betrayed. And John continues to give us details that the other biblical authors uh, didn't include in their testimonies. In the previous chapter, Jesus said his final words to the Jews who had rejected him, and then he hid himself from them. But he only hid himself from them because starting in this chapter, Jesus is spending time exclusively with his disciples. So given that his hour has come, and that his betrayal and his subsequent arrest are only a few hours away, Jesus has some very important truths to share with his disciples. And so it's no surprise that his teachings on this occasion are what the next four chapters consist of. For four chapters, he's just pouring into his disciples because this this is his last chance to pour into them before these events unfold. Some of the teachings that we'll find in these chapters were, for the disciples, difficult truths to accept, truths that would be difficult for them to understand, difficult for them to come to terms with. And so as Jesus approaches his final opportunity to teach his disciples about God's sovereign, saving love, he begins with action rather than with words. We all know, anybody who's been loved knows It's one thing for somebody to tell you that they love you. It's something entirely different when somebody shows you that they love you. And that's what Christ does. So before telling them about the love that he has for them, he demonstrates it. He shows it to them. But John wants to make sure that we understand that the context of this scene is the unthwartable, the unchanging, the everlasting, the ever-faithful love that Jesus has for his own. The point of this passage that we come to today is that Jesus' incredible love is demonstrated by his humble service and by his willingness to cleanse even the dirtiest and messiest things about us. So we start just by looking at verse 1 of chapter 13 where John tells us this. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There are some lengthy sermons and books that have been written just on this one verse. This amazing, wonderful, sovereign, saving love of Jesus sets the context for this half of the book. This verse not only begins the half of the book that, uh, that talks about the, the cross and everything, but it tells us about the love that Jesus has 
that drove him to the cross. And this is what sets the context for going to the cross. It also looks backwards to what John has already written, and it looks forward to what is coming ahead. The key phrase here in this first verse, the thing that we need to latch on to before we proceed is this. It's the clause that tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We're told that it's the night of the Passover feast and that Jesus is completely aware of the fact that his hour has come and that he would be departing from the world to return to the Father. The time for him to be arrested, the time for him to be tried by Pontius Pilate and sentenced to die a sinner's death and thereby complete the work which he had come to accomplish was at hand. And yet, while he knows that incredible pain and suffering awaits him in only a few hours at this point, his focus is on his own, his people, specifically on his love for his people. And this, of course, isn't to say that Jesus doesn't have love for those who aren't his own. Of course he does. But the love that he has for those who are not his own pales in comparison to the heights and depths and breadths of love that he has for his own. His love for his own is a covenantal love. The Hebrew word in Old Testament that you would use here is hesed. It's a word that gets often translated loving kindness. And that's only used of his love toward his own people toward his bride. Just like a a groom may have a general sense of love for women other than his bride, uh, there is a unique love that he has for his bride, a, a covenantal love that he ought to have for his bride, a faithful love, a sacrificial love, an unbreakable love. That's the kind of love that Christ had for his own. Husbands, That's the kind of love you are instructed to give toward your wives, to exercise toward your wives. When Paul says in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So why are his own his own? Why are they his? There are several answers for this. The first is that Christ chose them. Christ chose them. That's, that's the first answer. In chapter 15, we'll see him affirm this with the disciples when he tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You have to wonder what they were thinking when they heard that, because they would have said, wait a minute, when he invited me to come, I went. I thought I chose him. But Jesus is affirming in that chapter, in that verse, that he chose his own. But we can also say that his own are indeed his own because they were given to him. By whom? By the Father. By the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me, is what Jesus said back in chapter 6. Paul tells us that God chose us in him, that is, chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. It's from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Rewind just a second there. According to whose will? His, not ours. 
according to the kind intention of the Father's will. So first, we are Christ because He chose us. The second reason is that God the Father gave His people to Him. And the third answer is that we're His because we were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. As the Lord told the prophet Ezekiel regarding the new covenant which was to come and be established by the blood of the Messiah, He said, I will put My Spirit where? Within you. And cause you to walk in My statutes. And you will be careful to observe My ordinances. That's from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. And of course, Jesus would focus on the Holy Spirit's role in his conversation with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, when he said this to Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Our salvation, friends, is a Trinitarian salvation. Every person, all three persons of the three-in-one triune Godhead work to accomplish our salvation, to make us Christ's own, to make us willing to choose to follow Christ. If there is ever a time, if we think about the context of what's happening here, if there is ever a time when we would completely understand if Jesus was just distracted and distraught or or just so troubled that he didn't want to spend time with anybody else. He just wanted to be completely alone instead of spending time with his own. It would be here when his hour has come and his time of suffering is closing in on him. But instead, what we see is that his own are the one thing on his mind in this moment. So before we continue, let's consider what exactly this means, that he loved his own until the end. What exactly does that mean? The end of what? Uh, To to the end of Jesus's own life? Sure, he, he was going to love them until the end of his life, absolutely. But his love for his own even goes beyond that. What about to the end of the lives of his own? Okay, Yes, absolutely. Even though Peter was about to deny Jesus, he would love him till the end. Even though his disciples were about to scatter upon Jesus' arrest, deserting him in his final hour, nevertheless, he would love them until the end of his life and even until the end of their own lives. But again, it goes even beyond that. It goes even beyond that. How about until the end of the world? How about until the end of history? How about all the way to when we enter into his eternal presence in glory one day and beyond? Yes, even until then. He loved, he loves, and he will love his own forever forever. At our study this past Wednesday, one of the things we tried to wrap our minds around is the fact that there was never a time when God has not loved His own. There was never a time when He didn't love us and then started loving us, because that would be a change, and God doesn't change. That would be Him learning something, and God doesn't learn. No, He 
has loved us with an eternal love, something that we just can't wrap our minds around because we're so finite. In fact, as Richard Phillips points out, in Hebrew, the expression, to the end, means forever, end quote. So as one commentator describes this, he says, quote, his heart under the impulse of love is firmly and immutably bent on taking the way to the cross, end quote. Love drives what he's doing. Love drives what he's about to do. Suffering awaits him. A fate far worse than a million painful deaths awaits him. And yet, his resolve to love his own is undeterred. His resolve, his commitment to love his own is unshaken. What amazing obedience to the Father's will. What amazing love for unworthy, undeserving sinners. What amazing grace. What amazing grace. This was true of his love for his disciples and friends. It is true about his love for all, even to this day, who are his own. Nothing, nothing can break or shake his love for us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the kind of love that serves as the setting, the context for what takes place in the passage to follow. So let's continue looking at verses 2 to 5. John writes, During supper the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. He then poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The foot washing scene is easily, by far, one of the most beloved images of God's unchanging, sacrificial love for filthy, unworthy sinners in all of Scripture. And it's interesting that John begins by telling us that the devil had already persuaded Judas to betray Jesus. In one sense, it's, it's kind of a foreshadowing of what's to come before the end of the night, but I think that John is also once again presenting a contrast. He's shown us Jesus's love, what, what Jesus has his mind set on, versus what Judas has his mind set on. So there's a contrast between Jesus and Judas. Jesus was acting in obedience to the will of his Father, as he always did, and so was Judas. Judas was acting in the mindset of his own father. He was obeying the devil himself. Judas was prideful, while Jesus is demonstrating his incredibly humble spirit. Judas is thinking only of himself, but Jesus is thinking only of others, specifically of his own. The, the contrast that we see here, this is also a contrast that exists all the way even to this day, this contrast between, really, between Christ and between Satan. The world's ideals, philosophies, and values are in large part the same ideals, philosophies, and values that Satan shows throughout Scripture. 
That's why Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that's what he writes. Back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul wrote, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul refers to Satan as the god of this world. So hopefully you get the point. The world, like Judas, is under satanic influence, and it is completely unlike the way of Christ. The way of Christ is entirely different from the way of the world, the way of Satan. It's motivated by love. First, by God's love for us. Secondly, by our love for Him. Third, it's motivated by love for neighbor. For neighbor. And this love is a humble love. It's a self-sacrificial love. Just like the love that Christ has for His own is sacrificial. That's why Paul instructs us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, writing, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And he goes on to tell us who exemplifies this perfectly. Who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus models this perfectly. The way of the cross, the way of Christ, is completely different from the way of the world. I was watching a video this week by a guy uh, on Instagram. He had seen the videos of this pastor, Tim Stevens, uh, in Alberta, Canada, being arrested right in front of his own family with his kids bawling and everything uh, for having outdoor services. This is the second time being arrested. Last time it was for indoor services. This time it was for outdoor services. Never mind the fact that there's not one recorded case of transmission of COVID outside. Anyway, this video was by a guy who's a former police officer himself. But he was arguing that the police officers who conducted this arrest warrant should be beaten to death for what they did. And while... I guess on one hand, I I guess I can appreciate the fact that someone with a fairly large audience actually cares that religious rights are being trampled on. The idea of beating police officers to death is not the way of Christ. That is the way of the world. What is the way of Christ when we are wronged, when we are persecuted? What is the way of Christ? Well, the way of the world is violence and retribution and vengeance. What is the way of Christ when we are wronged? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Or how about never take your own revenge, beloved? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What's interesting is that Jesus demonstrates this for us so, so clearly in the passage at hand because Jesus even washes the feet of Judas, who's about to betray him. That's the way of Christ toward his enemies, toward those who persecute him. Even he blesses those who persecute him. 
John tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, he had all authority. He had all dominion, even at this point. Now, if, if you were talking about a leader who has the authority to do whatever he wants in the whole world, what would you expect Jesus to do with that authority? Maybe you'd think that he would insist on one of his servants getting down to wash his feet, but instead he gets up, he puts his garments aside, he wraps a towel around himself, bows down, and starts washing the feet of his disciples. The very same hands that hold the earth, the very same hands that hold the universe, would humbly take into his hands the dry, dirty, filthy, disgusting feet of 12 grown men, all of whom were on the verge of betraying or abandoning or denying him in one way or another. Now keep in mind that in first century Israel, pretty much everybody wore sandals. Uh, What's more, they walked along roads that weren't paved. They were more like dirt paths, just dirt everywhere. So their feet would be hard. Their feet would be calloused. Their feet would be absolutely disgusting. I mean, grown men who wear shoes, their feet are disgusting, right? How much more disgusting would a man's feet be if he wears sandals all the time? We don't have to imagine that. They're, They're pretty disgusting. But there were actually laws that were forbidding most slaves from having to perform the task of washing feet because it was such a disgusting idea. It was such a low, debased task. And yet, nobody asks Jesus to do this. Nobody thinks that he would do this. And yet Jesus willingly put himself into that role, lower than a slave, in order to humbly serve his own whom he loved until the end. Now, let's be honest about this for for just a moment. If if John hadn't told us that this foot washing took place, we never would have imagined that the king of all glory, who dwells in unapproachable light, would ever, ever do such a thing. And yet he did. And in doing so, he, he does two things here by doing this. Number one, he gives us an object lesson on our need to be cleansed. And, and cleansed regularly. But secondly, he models humble, loving, self-sacrificial service for us in an extreme, extreme way. If Jesus would serve these unworthy, undeserving men in such a tender, loving, and, and sacrificial way, then we can be sure that if we're going to serve him, it needs to look like that too. It needs to be tender. It needs to be loving. It needs to be sacrificial as well. Jesus, who is the highest of all highs, takes the lowest position in serving others. What means of serving others would you be tempted to say are below you? We all have a line where we would draw, right? We all have a place where we'd say, uh, I'd do almost everything, but not that. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He takes the most menial, the most disgusting of all the tasks and performs it for his own. 
God is greatly glorified in humble service unto others. And if we're going to serve the world in order for them to see the glory and the humility and the love of God and that He would be glorified by our deeds, how much more should we be willing to put on the cleansing towel in our own families and in our church, in our fellowship with fellow Christians? Just as Jesus laid His garments aside, we too need to be willing to lay aside our pride. And anything else that would prevent us from serving others out of a sense of humble love and compassion. Now put yourself in the, in the shoes, the sandals of the disciples for just a moment. And think about what must have been going through their minds as Jesus went from one disciple to the next, cleaning their filthy feet. Especially given the fact that they had been expecting the Messiah to come in order to establish an earthly kingdom and to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. Well, if we know anything about Peter in particular, at least in this point in his life, we know that we never have to wonder what Peter's thinking. Uh, But Jesus always knows how to respond to him. And so there's an interesting dialogue that takes place between Jesus and Peter here. Let's look at verses 6 to 11. So he, Jesus, so he came... To Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not now realize, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, if you, if you look at history, if you look at the writings that we have from around this era, it was absolutely, positively unheard of that one friend would wash the feet of his friends. Absolutely nobody did that. People were kind of expected to do that for themselves. In fact, throughout all of ancient literature and historical recordings, there are absolutely no examples of an equal, much less of a superior, washing the feet of others. This would have been extremely confusing for the disciples as Jesus went from one disciple to the next cleansing their dirty feet, taking them in his hands and and washing them with the water in this basin. These are the same feet. He's washing the same feet that they would use to scatter on in only a few hours. But isn't this often how we respond to God when he does something in our lives that we don't expect or that we don't understand? We get confused about what he's doing sometimes, don't we? And, and we're like the disciples in this moment in that sense. Like, what is he doing? This is not something that I would have expected, and I don't understand why he would do this. And so when he comes to Peter, that, that's exactly what is going through Peter's mind. And Peter's response is to just slam the brakes on this whole operation. Lord, do you wash my feet? He's confused. This, this doesn't 
jive with him at all. It doesn't fit at all with what he thought Jesus was supposed to come and do. Now, maybe his response, some people might argue that it, it uh, indicates that Peter's just being kind of humble uh, by, by refusing to let Jesus serve him. But humility, friends, humility does not decline the Lord's service. Pride does. Pride does. Pride says, oh, my feet aren't that bad. Oh, my filth isn't all that bad. Pride says, I'll, I'll wash myself. I'll take care of it myself. I, I don't need your help or anybody else's help. And that's exactly how the unregenerate man responds to our insistence that only Jesus can cleanse them. Jesus responds to Peter by assuring him that he doesn't understand. Sure, that's fine. He doesn't understand now, but he will understand later. And there's another good principle for us to to hold on to, to keep in mind. When God does something that we don't expect or something that we don't understand in our lives as well, for example, when people find themselves in a tough spot, in a, in a bad situation, when they're going through a trial in life, I'll often remind them, cling to Romans 8.28, which tells us that God is causing all things to work together for the good of His own. The difficulty that we have in those moments when we're going through the fire, when we're going through trials, is that we usually can't see how that trial, how that terrible situation, maybe even a painful situation, is working for our good. And when people raise this objection, what I'll usually say is, you will. If somebody says, I don't understand how this could possibly be working for my good, you will. You will understand one day. It might be in this life. It might not be in this life. It might be in glory. But the day will come when you will thank God for every single trial you've gone through. That's amazing. It's amazing to to try to wrap your mind around Romans 8.28 or the other promises of God that are great to to anchor us to our, our faith and to comfort us in times of conflict or or trial. We often don't understand, but we will. We will. And so suddenly we see that it really is pride on Peter's part. It's not humility. It's pride that filled Peter's heart in this moment, because at this point, he does something that's really, really bad. He tries to rebuke Jesus for trying to assure him that one day he'll understand. He says, you shall never wash my feet. Generally speaking, you are really stepping into deep, deep trouble if you find yourself trying to rebuke or refute or weasel your way around something that the Lord says. And yet we see people do this all the time. Just log on to Twitter. Twisting scripture to make it say something that it doesn't or simply to dismiss it, dismiss what it does say. Maybe they'll say, well, Paul said that, not Jesus. So as if one is more authoritative than the other, they're both inspired by the same Spirit. People do that. People try to weasel their way around Scripture. People try to rebuke or refute what Scripture clearly says. I remember having a conversation with a woman 
who was struggling with the doctrine of total depravity. She didn't accept the doctrines of grace, which is fine, but what I understand is that when people don't accept the doctrines of grace, it's because they don't understand or they don't accept the doctrine of total depravity. So I said to her, the scriptures clearly teach that none are righteous, none seek God, uh, none are good, not even one. And so I said to her, so if nobody seeks God, it necessarily follows that God must first seek us. And her response was to say, well, well, that wasn't my experience. When I became a Christian, it was because I was seeking God. Rather than refuting the doctrine of total depravity, you might say that she actually proved it. Anytime, friends, anytime you're tempted to elevate your feelings, anytime you're tempted to elevate your experiences over Scripture, you are stepping into a heap of trouble. Don't, get, don't go there. And, and quickly, quickly repent when you do. Because rebuking or refuting Scripture is one of the clearest signs of apostasy that there is. Repent of that foolishness. And that's exactly what Peter does. When Jesus responds by saying, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter repents immediately on the spot. He repents and says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Good move, Peter. Good good move. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. What a gracious thing for our Lord to say. I, I can only imagine Shamefully, I have to confess the things that I think I would probably be inclined to say if I had been in Jesus' position. I probably would have said something like, hey, Peter, you remember that time I said, get behind me, Satan? I meant that, just in case you were wondering. Or maybe I would have said, Peter, do you ever think before you speak? I don't know. Or who knows what I would have said. But Of course, later on, what I probably would have been doing is just kicking myself for speaking before I thought uh, and spoke too harshly. I've done this so many times now, I know the drill. But Jesus responds graciously. He responds so kindly to Peter. He responds firmly. He speaks firmly to Peter, but he speaks with such grace and such kindness. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. It's a very serious warning. It's a gracious warning, but it's a very serious warning that Jesus is giving Peter. The word part refers to fellowship. Jesus is saying, Peter, if I don't wash you, we have no fellowship. We are, we are not together. That's to say Peter could not enter into heaven. He was unregenerate. He was separated from God with no mediator to reconcile him to God. And so by saying this, Jesus has shown us what he was actually trying to teach us with this object lesson. The foot washing is symbolic of a greater need, a greater cleansing that we need. This act of humility, washing their feet, was a mere shadow of the humility that would be on display the very next day when Jesus would be nailed to a cross. Now, we can take this warning, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part with me. We can take this warning and apply it to you and to me and to everybody. 
If you have not been washed by Jesus, if you have not been cleansed by Jesus, you have no part with Him. You have no fellowship with Him. Jesus was pointing to the greater cleansing that we all need, a cleansing from sin, a cleansing from unrighteousness. He was pointing them and He's pointing us to the perfect, all-sufficient cleansing that was to come through His death which cleanses all who savingly believe in Him. Are you among that number? There's an incredible symbolism just throughout this passage. Go go through this with me. Think about this for a second. First of all, out of love for His own and out of obedience to the Father, Jesus arose from His seat, we were told at the beginning of the passage, just as motivated by love for his own and obedience to the will of the Father. He rose from his heavenly throne in order to condescend into the world. Second, John told us that Jesus laid aside his garments. Likewise, Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, Paul tells us that in his condescension, he emptied himself, which can also be translated as laid aside. Third, John tells us that Jesus took a towel and wrapped it around himself the same way that the lowest of low servants would do. And likewise, Paul tells us that Jesus not only emptied himself, but took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Fourth, Jesus pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet, just as he would in only a few hours at this point pour out his blood for the greater cleansing, the cleansing of sin through his sacrifice. Fifth and finally, Jesus would rise from his humbled position into a position of fellowship with his own, which is a picture of his resurrection and ascension into glory, where he would prepare a place for us to come and experience eternal fellowship with him. So much symbolism in this passage. Peter probably didn't realize or understand yet, but his response was to be cleansed from head to toe. Okay, if I, if I can't have any part with you unless I'm cleansed, don't just clean my feet because I want all of me to have fellowship with you. What he knew, what he did understand was that he wanted no part of anything that would prevent him from having fellowship with Jesus. Amen. Friends, you and I need this washing that Jesus is referring to as well. A.W. Pink notes this of the washing. He says, quote, This washing is something more than confession of sin and consequent forgiveness. It is the searching out of the Word in the presence of God of that which led me into evil. It is judging the root of which sins are the fruit. Yet this washing must not be limited to God's remedy for our declension and failure. Rather, we should view it as His gracious provision for our daily need, as a preservative and a preventative against outward failures. We need to get alone with our Lord each day, opening our hearts to the light as the flower does its petals to the sun. Alas, that we have so little consciousness of our deep need for this, and that there is so little retirement and examination of our ways before God. To really place our feet for washing in the blessed hands of Christ is to come before Him in the attitude of the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, 
and lead me in the way everlasting. This is imperatively necessary if, while in such a defiling place as this world, we are to have a part with him. End quote. The problem that we have by nature, friends, is not that our feet are dirty. It's not that our hands are even dirty. It's that our hearts and our minds are dirty. By nature, our hearts, our minds, our entire being is corrupted by sin, and we're unable to cleanse ourselves. And yet in his stubborn pride, the unregenerate man will say, I don't want Jesus to cleanse me. But friends, there is no other way to be saved from the real filth that we carry. It's a filth that only Jesus can cleanse. Jesus says to Peter in response to his desire to be cleansed from head to toe, he says, he who has, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. I'm sure that was pretty confusing in that moment. After all, Jesus just washed the feet of all the disciples. But it's, again, it's symbolic. Jesus is saying that those who come to him in true faith are cleansed once and for all. And all of the disciples had done this except one. That's the the first great truth that he communicates here. When he says, but is completely clean, he's talking about having your sin completely washed away and forgiven once and for all. What that means is that you cannot and you never will be more clean than you were when you first put your faith in Christ for salvation. The the righteousness, the perfect, unblemished righteousness that you stood in that very moment that you believed is the same perfect righteousness that you stand in now if your faith has persevered. And His perfect righteousness cannot possibly be improved upon. You're clean. You were clean from the moment you first believed, and you're still clean. But the second truth that Jesus is making here is that just as the feet of the disciples would get dirty again as soon as they walked through the streets of the world, so too we need to continually come back to Jesus to have our feet cleansed as we live and walk and operate in a world that is dirty everywhere you look. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day, something we need every day. Richard Phillips notes, quote, we are clean in the sight of God, but our feet are soiled as we walk through this world. Therefore, it is not our standing before God that needs ongoing cleaning, but our walks as Jesus' disciples that compels us to bring our feet to the towel-wearing Savior, end quote. Friends, every Christian needs continual cleansing, daily cleansing, because our walks are continually contaminated by sin. If your kids, say they took a bath last week, and here they come, they've been playing out in the mud, and you say, oh, you're just filthy, you need to be cleaned. Uh, but they say, well, I took a bath last week. What good is that? Okay, I still love you, but you're, you're really filthy and we need to clean you off. We need the same thing. 
Every Christian needs continual daily cleansing because our walks are always being contaminated by the dirty world that we walk in. Jesus gladly cleanses our sins and keeps us in fellowship with Him when we come to Him in this way. What a rich blessing to remember that if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we can't miss how this passage ends. We can't miss what Jesus tacks on to the end of what He says to Peter. Jesus assures Peter that he's cleansed, that that Peter's cleansed. But then he adds, but not all of you. John tells us why Jesus added this in verse 11. He tells us why Jesus added this. He, He says, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Of course, we know that's Judas. Judas presents us with a terrible and terrifying reality that it is possible to sit at the feet of Jesus. It is possible to listen to preaching. It is possible to learn and to witness Jesus in all of His glory and yet not be cleansed from sin. For years at this point, Judas Iscariot has been following Jesus and he'd heard Jesus preach the gospel countless times. He had seen Jesus perform these astounding miracles. He had even gone out and preached and performed miracles himself when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. And yet his heart was still filthy. His heart remained ever distant from God. And thus while his feet might have been clean on the outside, his heart was filthy and contaminated, uncleansed, and thus Judas remained completely lost because of his unbelief. Unbelief. The greater cleansing, which was accomplished the next day on the cross, the greater cleansing was not applied to him because of his unbelief. He was still dirty. He was still contaminated by sin before God. He still stood in his sin rather than standing in Christ's perfect righteousness before God. This fact, knowing what we know about Judas and what he did, it serves as a warning for us. It it forces us to examine ourselves to make sure that we aren't like Judas. Forces us to remember that Jesus said that until the end of the age, there will be tares among the wheat. And they look the same. They look real similar. Am I one? Am I like Judas? Am I a tear? The reality of what he has experienced for at least three years forces us to ask ourselves these questions. Jesus' incredible love is demonstrated by his humble, humble service and by his willingness to cleanse even the dirtiest, messiest things about us. 
Let us, friends, let us therefore cast aside anything that would stand in the way of us coming to him to be made clean in order that we may have fellowship with him. Cast aside anything that would prevent us from having part with him. Psalm 103 verses 2 and 4 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. It's so easy to forget those benefits. It's so easy to forget those things. And it's so easy to think, I don't have time today, I'll come tomorrow. No, remember them today. Remember them every day. And come for those benefits at his feet every day. Our assurance, as the psalmist writes, is this, that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah. We don't need to stand in our sin anymore. That's the cleansing we need. And it's the cleansing that Jesus alone can provide and will provide in order that we may have fellowship with him. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, again we come before you humbly and acknowledge that our feet, so to speak, are dirty. That without your grace, without your mercy, without the cleansing blood of Jesus, our hearts would be far from you and would be filthy. We would have the same heart as Judas. And so we thank you for your grace that you put your spirit within us, that you cleansed us, that you washed us, that you forgave us. We thank you that Christ lived a perfect life, that he was unblemished, that he knew no sin, and yet was willing to be sin in order that we may be reconciled to you and in order that we may receive and stand in his perfect righteousness before you. Teach us, O Lord, to remember and to take advantage of these benefits that we have in Christ, of coming to you daily for cleansing, cleansing our feet. Help us, O Lord, not to be soiled by sin and by the dirtiness of this world, but cleanse us when we are. Cleanse us when we are soiled. We thank you that Jesus does this when we confess our sins to him. We thank you that we stand before you in his righteousness because he stood taking our sin upon himself. Teach us to live our lives in light of that truth, in light of the cost that was necessary for our redemption, in light of the cleansing that Jesus offers. In his name we pray. Amen.